ಸ್ಥಾಪಕಾಯಧರ್ಮಸ್ವರ್ಮಸ್ವಿಣೆ ಅವತಾರವರಿಷ್ಠಾ ರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಾಯುದೇವಸುತೂರಮರ್ದನ So in the last class, if you remember just before the break, we were in the third chapter of Srimad Bhagavad Gita where we were discussing the concept of Yajna. As we will find that in Bhagavad Gita, the concept of Yajna which has been discussed is actually having a much more all-encompassing view. Generally, Yajna means the fire sacrifice. So what the fire sacrifice is for as in the Vedic period, in the Karmakanda, we find the idea of fire sacrifice that you are offering oblations to the fire. Fire is just like the mouth of the devas, the gods. All the various gods, the concepts of the divinities in the Vedic period we find is a personification of the nature. Like the rain, the Pavan Devata. So Indra, the who gives rain. So all this Yajyas, the concept was that whatever uh, may be the purpose, it's the purpose that I have some desires to be fulfilled. For my own, this cultivation of land, I need more rain. Or even it may be some other desires that someone is childless, they want children. So for that, they are offering oblations to the fire. And the fire takes those oblations, fire is the mouth of the devas, to all those devas. And they are pleased. And in return, they will be, shower, they will be showering the blessings. So it's a question of give and take. So it's a very limited idea of yajna. But in the, Vedic, in the Vedic period, we will find in the later Vedic literature, like in the Shatapata Brahmana, this idea of Yajna has been much more enlarged. It is encompassing what? That the ultimate reality, the Brahman, who has projected this universe, while projecting this universe, which is the expression of Shakti, of energy, what I find is this universe is nothing but Shakti, energy and energy alone. As even science will say that energy and matter is interconvertible. Everything can be resolved back to some energy, to some fields. And Vedanta says that yes, that Shakti, which has came from, is a projection of Brahman. And then there's a wonderful concept. It we find in other religions also the same idea that that energy, that Shakti, which is finding expression as the creation, is not chaotic. 
there is a wonderful balance within it. They follow certain universal laws. To give an example, the nuclear bomb initially, which was used for explosion to destroy the same nuclear energy when it is uh, used within a nuclear reactor and then through the process of controlled fusion or fission, then that same energy instead of destruction can give us energy for our various fuels, our energy for lighting our house. So it is used in some constructive purpose. The same destructive energy when it is controlled, it can be used for some constructive purposes. So similarly, the original the creation when it happened, when the ultimate conscious principle found expression as energy, it was not chaotic. It found expression as rhythm. As you will find, the vachakas are very important in Sanskrit. Om represents the ultimate reality, the Brahman, which finds expression as Shakti. The vachaka of Shakti is rim, as rim, Shakti. And that rim again finds expression as rhythm. The literal translation of rhythm is satyam, is truth. But actually the meaning of rhythm is laws. That the entire creation is bound by certain laws. There's a very famous quotation of Einstein. What he says that the most incomprehensible fact of the universe is that it is comprehensible. The most incomprehensible fact of the universe is that it is comprehensible. What he's saying that, the uni that we as a human being is such a small creature as if crawling on the surface of the earth, compared to us, the universe is immense. We are just insignificant. But see the wonder, we, those who are physically something insignificant, but with our mind, we, with the modern technology, with the science, we are deciphering, unfolding the mysteries of the nature more and more. Not only that, our technology is helping us to land a satellite on the surface of the Mars. And with the rovers, it is going on on the Mars surface. How is it possible? Why this something which is supposed to be incomprehensible, so vast, has become comprehensible? Because there are some universal laws. Like in the case of landing the uh, a satellite in the Mars, what's the law? The basic law, the law of gravitation that we know the same law of gravitation which is valid here is valid anywhere. This speaks of the universality, that the energy, gravitation is also a form of energy. It is not something chaotic. It is finding expression in some rhythm, that rhythm from the word rhythm, the English word rhythm, you will find very similar. All these words, if you go back to the, the very, very the root, you will find there has so much similarity that from rhythm, from this rhythm, the universe is sustained, is being sustained. You'll find that all these laws are so much universal. But in science, we are restricting ourselves only to the physical laws. But as a human being, there are some laws, some commandments which do guide our life. 
Nowadays, with the development of science, technology, sometimes we say that those are all relative. There was the creation of the church, of organized religion. We may follow them, we may not follow them. And that's the thing which was spoken, which was something uh, related to Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna's reply was wonderful. When someone asked, is there something called absolute truth? All the truth seems to be relative. Is there something absolute truth? Sri Ramakrishna, in his usual casual way, as he was not educated in a, form, in a formal way, in the present sense of education, he was illiterate, almost illiterate. So he, but he was a man of realization. His answers were something very simple, but very profound. What he replied is something wonderful. He told, yes, there is something called absolute truth. And then instead of speaking in some abstruse language, he gave a very simple example. That longka khele, in Bengali he's saying longka khele, jhal lagde. That if you taste chili, you're bound to have that hot sensation. Now you may say, what's this answer? The answer is something wonderful. That when you are having your meals, there are some chilies kept in a plate. And now it is your choice. You may take the chili and have your food along with the chili or you may not. It is your choice. But I will have the chili and I won't have that hot sensation. Is it ever possible? No. <coughs> so laws are laws. If laws can be broken, they, are, they cannot be laws. So there are some laws which I may follow, which I may not follow. But the result that follows, that I cannot change. That is something fixed. If I don't check lily, take lily, uh, chili, well, I don't have that hot sensation. But if I have the chili, I'm bound to have that hot sensation. So what Sri Ramakrishna is saying is wonderful, that there is something called absolute truth. When the creation happens, it happens following certain laws, whether it is physical laws or moral laws. It follows that. Now it's up to us as a human being other creatures were guided by instincts, but for us, rationality has taken the place of instinct. So the question of choice comes, we may, we may not. Kartum, akartum, anyatha kartum in Sanskrit. They use this three term. I may do, kartum, akartum, I may not do. Or I may do in a different way, not the way which you are prescribing. So kartum, akartum, anyatha kartum. So choice is mine. But after choosing, Know it for certain, the result is fixed, that you cannot break. And there it's fixed off the commandments of the do's and do's, you know, don'ts, the vidis and nishedas, which we find in all the perennial religions. It is there in some form or other. So we cannot avert the results which follow from it. So here in Bhagavad Gita, they're speaking of one such basic law behind the organic creation. That is the not only organic, any this the tenter creation. This what is that? The idea of give and take, the idea of interdependent co-arising, as has been spoken of in Buddhism. That nothing can stand in this universe segregated separately. Everything is interdependent. In Bhagavatam, we find that Krishna has taken a, just a lump of soil. Like any children, the children have the habit that you know that whatever they get, they will put in their mouth. So he has put a lump of soil in his mouth. And his mother, Yashoda, 
in the attempt to get out this keep just um, uh, he was asking krishna to spit out that lump of clay but he was not willing he was still keeping it in his mouth and the mother came and pressed his cheeks to forcefully open up the mouth and when the mouth was opened instead of seeing the clay what she saw was the entire universe and we say these are all this mystical stories with all mythological aspects it may have, have no sense but sometimes we say that most probably we don't have the eyes of yashoda if we had eyes of the yashoda most probably we could also have seen the entire universe in that lump of clay you may say how so now the lump of clay is not something segregated from the entire universe where the clay is there if you go to central australia where it is desert you won't get soil it's all sand and sand alone how the soil comes into existence there must be some organic matter where life is the plants the trees they die they decompose they mix with the soil in gradual course in, with the sand in gradual course they become soil the soil the clay is the proof that there is some organic matter without organic matter there cannot be soil so where you have a this a lump of clay it means there was a tree where the tree is it proves what there is sun without sun i cannot think of the tree where the tree is through the roots it is taking the water the minerals not a single mineral has been created on this earth we are all stardust it is in the core of the star these minerals this all these various metals are created and this stardust is nothing which has all uh, conglomerated as this earth and it it speaks of the interdependence of the entire universe if you can really have the eyes of yashoda you can see in that lump of clay the sun the stars the entire universe because nothing is separate so that's the idea of yagya the give and take the when this creation comes into existence everything has to coalesce cooperate synergize to make the thing happen then only the creation can be sustained that's why a few slokes early we have studied that that sahayagya prajasrishto when the creation happened when the lord created this universe he created along with sahayagya along with this concept of yagya that you have to relate with each other just see from that basic limited idea of yagya as a fire sacrifice how it has now enlarged to encompass the our entire existence that now even in biology we will find there's idea it's not the darwin's theory of evolution was misinterpreted as what a struggle for existence means there there is bound to be difference is variation among the various uh species and subspecies and the, those who are equipped to fight with the nature they will thrive others will become extinct so it speaks of competition and that's the if we have trying to understand it in a very in a surface level it speaks only of competition and that's what happened in the european country before the pre world wars you know this it is a wrong interpretation of the darwin theory of evolution which has resulted in hitler at last how you will say a famous 
philosopher, the German philosopher Nietzsche, he started interpreting this Darwin's theory as this struggle means. So now gods, we did not have to believe in that evolution is even religion believes, even science believes. But how evolution has happened for that, the religion speaks of some that from the top, that there is some God or consciousness, whatever it, from there it has happened. So you, it speaks of something which you, are, you find in your mythological stories. And now Nietzsche started saying that for the evolution as per Darwin's theory, you need not have to relate to the mythologies of the religion, the mythologies of the religion. Go to the history. What you will find, it is the Greeks, the Romans, the cruel, extremely cruel, who were in thirst for power, who were in the annex, in the, in the, what you say, the peak of civilization. What a tremendous, the zenith of civilization we had. You just, the archeological findings will show how they have been in the top of the world. It's only through exploitation. So what it speaks that there is going to be difference among the species, various species, even among the humans all are not same. Those who are more well equipped biologically, they can accelerate the process of evolution by willfully getting rid of those who are so-called sub, not up to the mark. They will get annihilated, by the way. The nature will annihilate them. Why not accelerate the process and get the, and you will find that colonialization, everything was justified with that type of idea. It's a very, very dangerous idea. When Swami Vivekananda was going through the West, when everyone was pointing the how these nations are flourishing, just see. Swamiji, just with his intent eyes, he told, what I am seeing is something different. I am seeing the entire Europe is just sitting on the top of a volcano just to explode any time. No one could understand. Just see, Swami Vivekananda passed away in 1902. In those days, no one has thought that there is going to be these two devastating world wars waiting. It was based on this idea. It is a Nietzsche's philosophy, which Hitler also followed. The idea of the supremacy of the rest. And, but now you will find in biology, even with Swami, it's very interesting. Swami Vivekananda, in those days, in his own words, he's giving a very nice allegory, very nice allegory to say that evolution never happened through competition. It has happened through cooperation. Even if accidentally somewhere competition was there, that was not the basic law. It somehow happened, but that's not the basic law. The basic law is cooperation. He gave a very nice allegory, but a wonderful allegory. He says that how evolution happened. He said that competition may give an appearance of evolution, but competition through competition, never evolution has happened. The example was, he gave an example that suppose a theater is packed full, crowded, crowded theater, some show is going on, some theatrical performance is going on, and suddenly the screen falls, is dropped, the screen drops, and there's an announcement. The theater has caught fire in some corner. So you all have to immediately vacate the theater. It is going to be on fire. And there's a huge chaos, stampede. Only a few could manage to go out of the theater. So after saying this, the Swami Vivekananda is asking, do you think 
that those few who managed to come out are the evolved ones or it was just a chance most probably they were sitting near the exist with all those chaos they somehow uh, were not uh, in that stampede in that clash somehow they managed to came out do you think it shows a real evolution it may appear as an as if they evolved the real evolution would be what he says is very interesting in those days the ideas of synergy win win situation to explain the theory of darwin has not yet started no one has uh, started propounding this theory of synergy in those days swami ji saying just think a different thing that after the announcement if all the people think just the way even in the aeroplane they as an emergency instruction what they say stand up be in queue follow the line if that's the thing that it speaks of cooperation that let us not think think of rushing out let us be in queue silently let us start moving out don't you think most of them would have came out such a simple example is giving but it speaks a wonderful thing that when we are cooperating with each other then there is a chance of very mass evolution the entire thing comes out with the help of cooperating each other in annihilation those who come out that doesn't prove that they are the evolved ones just it gives an appearance they came out in modern biology they have started saying that competition was of course there but those who started cooperating within themselves they started to they say they sustained themselves the others got annihilated very surprising that one of the theories nowadays they are speaking of the neanderthals the another species were almost like the humans or the like the homo sapiens they were as evolved as the homo sapiens and now it the findings are the archaeological findings in certain aspects they were more developed than us the one of the theory of their ex- becoming extinct is that clash but there's a clash never happened they became too segregated even in biology they say that if you get too segregated your gene pool becomes too narrow if you find that those there are even in the human uh, civilization there are certain uh, sects who marry only within themselves and you will find now they don't have progenies they are getting extinct by themselves so biologically everywhere it speaks of intermingling the more you can reach out intermingle cooperate that i have some deficiency you have some deficiency but when we intermingle we get something even more than the individual parts that's the idea of synergy that in mathematics 2 plus 2 is 4 but in the biological world it's never <clears throat> suppose a plank of wood you keep it over the gorge to cross over the gorge and most probably it takes 20 kg weight it can withstand 20 kilo weight and now if you keep another plank over it that one plank the same plank over it mathematics will say now it can sustain 40 kilo but it has been found always it has been found that it's actually can withstand more than 40 maybe 60 maybe 80 maybe double maybe even more than that what it speaks that the indi- what is synergy when the individuals coalesce synchronize cooperate the 
total strength is much much greater than all the summation of the individual strength so that is synergy synchronous energy and that has resulted in the evolution and that's the one of the basic law which bhagavad gita is speaking is behind the creation is yagya that whatever you do do with a sense of yagya that my life is not just for my own selfish ends my life is for the collective goodness so uh, whatever i earn whatever i do it is for the collective goodness and whatever remains from that of course i have to sustain myself it is for me also i sustain but all the work which i am doing is not just meant for my selfish end even in the life of swami vivekananda to i explain this idea of yagya i will just resort to a story that how we have to enact ourselves in this world now swami vivekananda when he returned from the west to india along with him one of his western disciples his name was goodwin he came with him now goodwin was not a disciple he was actually a stenographer now swami vivekananda was an inspired person whenever he used to deliver lecture he was delivering lecture some 8 10 12 15 lectures per week it was a very very busy schedule everywhere he was called and he was just like a clarion call of vedanta he was just like a roaring lion he was spreading the message of vedanta now his followers started feeling that we will miss we will just lose all this thing he just like an inspiration he speaks out there is no record of it and in those days there was no thing there just there was no recorder or something to record his voice so in those days the only way we can keep the record is a stenographer the stenography has developed so they were in search of a stenographer and this goodwin they found so he was hired to just keep the notes of swami vivekananda the short notes of swami vivekananda which has now been uh, converted into this his works the nine volumes all, all the things which we uh, at present get of swami vivekananda's uh, literature it's 90% is from the goodwins uh, transcription shorthand notes so goodwin was hired but in the process of taking those notes he has after all hearing the thing he himself became inspired and that's how he became a devotee was so much ardent devotee of swami vivekananda when he returned to india he came along with him swami vivekananda was at that time has developed various ailments it is he who was like a personal attendant always with him everyone was impressed to see that how devoted he was attending on swami's day to day needs is taking care of him and then suddenly some of them discovered a thing that goodwin is still getting some remuneration and then the gossip started after all he is not a devotee he is paid for what he is doing and at last the words reached goodwin and hearing that goodwin immediately agreed he just said yes what you are saying is true i do get some remuneration and then what he said is something very valuable he told i have an old mother i am not Uh, he was not a married. He was a bachelor. He had an old mother back in UK. When he came from there, mother was still there. She was alive, and for her sustenance, I have to send some money for to her. 
and swami vivekananda is kind enough to provide some money to me which i sent to her i do take some money from swami vivekananda then he is saying but let no one think that for that money i serve him the service is just the output of my heart yes for my sustenance swami ji is kind enough to give me some money i provide it to him but no one should think that it is just a mercenary thing and in this attitude we will find if we all take this attitude in our day to day work that my skills my talents many have it's not me alone even there are many unfortunate ones uh, who have most probably better skills than me better intelligence than me but didn't get that opportunity i got why not i take it as an opportunity as a service to just to serve not just to exploit that whenever i get with my skills i use it only for my selfish end how much i can exploit instead of that mercenary attitude this is an opportunity for me to serve others of course in that i don't forget myself i have to serve myself also so i after the serving others there will be an affluence i don't need that that everything so i don't keep everything for me i keep of course to sustain myself the rest is there for the welfare of all my family my friends my neighbor as much as i can reach out and that's the idea of yagya selfless work in bhagavad gita which has been expounded in the third chapter it starts with that idea and we were discussing very uh, elaborately this idea which has been spoken of in bhagavad gita and the 13th the the last conclusive shloka of that idea of yagya was the 13th after uh, sorry the 16th 14th and 15th will, will give an example so what this 13th shloka was yagya shishta now let us go to that shloka yagya shishta shina santo yagya shishta the remnants of yagya asina the eaters the eaters of the remnants of yagya now if you take it in a limited sense still still people are doing that all the religions that elaborate offering will be there and after that you know well that the god who is sitting in the altar he is not going to eat all those things at last i will have the prasadam so is elaborate prasadams are there and we think that's the religion give that should be nice offering and after that we will have a nice feast and that is yagya shishta just see it actually ends up in utter selfishness where i know the one who i am offering is not going to have a single bit of it the entire thing i will be having i won't say that it doesn't have any spiritual implication you have a sense of sublimation my greed is being sublimed into devotion that is a good aspect of it that suppose i buy a mango from the market and simply devour it it speaks of my greed but, but i can sublimate that greed how i bring that mango with a sense of devotion i offer it to the divine and i then think it has been sanctified by the touch of the divinity and now i am taking a sanctified food with that a sense of devotion do grow so it's not that totally useless it do have some implication with all those elaborate rituals but we are limiting it to a very very narrow scope of our uh, unfoldment of our character if we take the idea of yagya in a broader sense 
it's not just offering to the deity and just having the prasadam yagya shishta asina that whatever i do in this life it is for the welfare of all and from that whatever little remains that i use for my sustenance that i do take care of my sustenance but i don't hold rest is in the present problem the pre- the entire problem of the present world is this holding the occupy movement which we have heard in the last decade in the wall street occupy movement the entire the what is the basic idea behind that movement that tremendous agitation and movement that 90% of the wealth of the world is with the 2% of the population it speaks of that hoarding the country's law rules regulations everything as if is for the 2% of that population the 2% of the population is hoarding the 98% wealth of the world this polarity has been created why because of extreme consumerism it's like carcinogen like in the body how that cancer cells develop this cancer this cancer cells are like that affluent 2% population who wants only to hold 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 in the cost for uh, from the body they are taking the nutrients for their own growth their growth is in no way balanced with the growth of the entire body their growth is at the cost of the entire body they are growing beyond the rate in which they are supposed to grow that ends up in the formation of the tumor and at last that ends up as being the cancer where the patient dies even that 2% cells which became carcinogenic they also die at last it's not that they can survive <clears throat> so that's the at last with the death of the body they also die so that's what the society is becoming carcinogenic with that polarity why the law is yagya the divine has still that with yagya with cooperation you live if you don't follow that result is something which we cannot change that will lead to destruction if i say i don't believe in gravitation and jump out of a 20 story building i'm not going to fly am i going to fly if i just jump out of a 20 story because i don't believe in gravitation law is law it cannot be broken whether i believe in it or not it has its own consequences if i jump out of a 20 story building thinking that there is no gravitation i don't believe i'm not going to fly so if i say i don't believe on these ideas these are all uh, superfluous ideas which has no base yes i can that's the what the world is doing and the world is have started feeling that what we have done till now is a historical blunder the global warming everything behind it you will find is nothing but this rampant idea of consumerism exploiting nature exploiting others for my own well-being and at last it has totally disbalanced the entire ecosystem everything so you will find the idea of yagya something very 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 so a pertinent idea in the bhagavad gita that it is the basic law and law cannot be broken if you try to break the law you break yourself you cannot break the law so this do not hold so when god has created the creation that's the thing which we are saying that other creation other creatures are guided by the instinct if you go to the forest you will find a lion never holds when he catches its prey the moment it is satiated it will not look back at its prey that half eaten half devoured prey will be left aside it will simply move off then the scavengers of the forest the fox the howls they call the scavengers the cleans 
whatever is re, re, what remains, all the carcasses that are remaining, they will be cleaning off. They will be hiding. The moment the lion leaves, they come. They start devouring. And it's not all. Still something will remain. The vulture is sitting in the top of the tree. Everyone has its own share. And as a human being, we go to the market. We find that suddenly that some of the vegetable or some of something has, is a bit cheap now. The price has fallen down. I buy a huge amount, bring them. I cannot eat everything. Whatever I eat remaining is there in that wonderful uh, thing which we have discovered. The refrigerator is there for me to have it tomorrow, day after tomorrow. So this idea of sharing. So that is gone. Why as a human being, we have developed that, in, that instinct that uh, has been replaced by our rational brain. We can just say these ideas are nonsense and that's why we have started holding, but the result can be get rid of that, no. So that's why we need those rhythm, the laws. There comes the perennial philosophy. The more we can recognize them, it is already there. We need not have to, with our modern science, discover those wisdom. It is already there. We have forgotten to recognize them. The more we recognize them, the more it is going to do good for us because they are the laws. You cannot break them. So do not hold. This is everywhere. This is everywhere. The idea of this sloka says, Yagya Shishta Ashina Santo Muchyante Sarva Kilvishai. That those who are the, they're eating sin. Who is eating sin? Those who just cook the food for themselves. Those who cook food only for themselves. Pachanti means to cook food. Only for self. They are just eating. Aghang means sins. So those who cook only for themselves, they eat only sin. <clears throat> the good people lives on the remnants of the yajna. And in that process, they're freed from the sin. They purify themselves. They santo muchyante sarva kilvishai. Kilvishai, kilvishai means all the <clears throat> wrong, the sins. They are muchyante. They get rid of them. They get freed from all the sins if you are just living on the remnants of the yajna. The moment you start cooking only for yourself, you are eating seen and seal alone. It is just like the food smeared with blood as if. So that's the idea which after speaking of that, Bhagavad Gita in the 14th and the 15th sloka will give one example to give the idea of yajna, the chakra. <clears throat> so you will find wonderful this Bhagavad Gita if you try to understand in its real perspective, it speaks something wonderful. Even nowadays, even in India, as we take these words in a very limited sense, we do something which has as if no meaning. In India, because of, you will find that because as we have exploited the nature, cut off the forest, jungle, the drought or the flood, these are the things that become very common. There will be droughts. Year after year, there is no rain. And then <clears throat> the some of the propounders of the religion will say that in our Vedas, it is mentioned, we have to do yajna. And yajna will give rain. 
you will find that that's what here in the 14th and the 15th slokas they are saying. Annad bhavanti bhutani parjanyat annasambhava. The real idea of yajna is given here. So the way we take the idea of yajna in a limited sense, that won't give rent. <clears throat> By doing yajna, I am just offering to the devas and they in return will give rent. From where he will give rent? We have already exploited the nature. The real yajna was there. We have not taken care of that. And now just by doing yajna, the rains will fall. That's not the basic idea. If you take in a broader sense, then that's which has been indicated in the Bhagavad Gita. What's the broader sense of yajna? Annat bhavanti bhutani. The entire creations, the bhuta, the living beings comes from anna, from food. Parjanyat anna sambhava. Parjanya means from rain. This food comes from rain. Yajyat bhavati parjanya. From where the rain comes, from yajna. If you take it in a limited sense, again, you are mis mis misguided that by doing yajna, the rain will come. No. That here the yajna is different. The idea of yajna is give and take. That we will come to the discussion. Yajna bhavati parjanyo, yajna karma samudbhava. And from that yajna comes, that when the creation happened, first came karma, first came energy, first came all these actions. And those actions were not uh, some chaotic, they followed certain guidelines. The guideline was yajna. And this, this from where the karma comes, you will find very interesting. The 15th so karma brahmod bhavang vidhi. So just if you take the this process of evolution, from brahma came karma, from karma came yajna, from yajna came parjanya, the rain, from rain came the crops, from crops life. So it starts with that divine origin. From Brahma, that all the Shakti, Karma, Karma speaks of Shakti, energy, that comes from Brahman. From Karma comes Yajna. From Yajna comes rain. From rain comes the crops. From crops, life. So this Karma, Brahmod, Bhavang, Vidhi. Know that all the Karma, this energy, the expression of energy in this universe comes from Brahma. Brahmak Shara Samud Bhavam. Brahma. That idea of Brahman is that like the cosmic mind, that cosmic mind has came from that akshara, the immute, that immutable ultimate reality. So that Brahman finds the expression as a cosmic mind. Within that mind, all the, uh, that what you say, the expression of energy is there, which follows certain guidelines. So that's why tasmat sarvagatang brahma nityam yagya pradishtitam. That Whatever you see in this world, know it for certain that everything is established in that yajna. So these T slokas, if you translate it that, that from Brahma comes the karma, karma speaks of all the, uh, what you see this, uh, things which has been enjoined in the Vedas in the form of karma kanda. From those yajnas come uh, rain, you will immediately brush it out. Any scientific people will brush it out. That how is it possible? So if you take the idea of yajna in a broader sense, then what happens? The real yajna is happening if you go to the any forest. Just look at the tree. The yajna of give and take is going on. What is the yajna? You, you will be very interested to, you will be very uh, surprised to know that you know, many of you know, that we think that, that such huge water body in the form of ocean is there. And the evaporation happens from that ocean body to form clouds. 
But you will be surprised to know that's a very, very small percentage of cloud comes from that huge water body. The maximum cloud comes, cloud comes from the water, which are from the roots, the plant is taking its uh, to its leaves. And from the leaves, the water is then trans, what is this, evaporated. It is called evapotranspiration. That constitutes more than 60% of the formation of the cloud. Now you will see, understand that why people that uh, the scientists have started saying that afforestation is the cause of the droughts and all this climatic change which is happening. Because the cloud formation is not from that huge water body. The three-fourth of the earth is water body. And we think from there the cloud forms. No. Most of the cloud is formed because of that evapotranspiration. That in the underground, the water is there, which through the roots is being carried to the entire plant. And from the leaves, the water is being evaporated. And that evapotranspiration constitutes. Now you will easily understand that if you cut up the trees, how can the rain be there? So where the real egg is happening, you just in the tree. There's a question of give and take. The rain falls, that goes into the underground water, the same underground water, that just the way in the yagya you are offering oblations to the fire and the fire in the form of the smoke goes out. Here something which is not visible is going up. What is that? In the form of evaporation from the leaves, that evapotranspiration is happening. Through that, the yagya is continuing. From that you get the rain. So now take it in a broader sense. Instead of doing the yagya, please plant trees. Make the land greener. We have just, <clears throat> this uh, Australia has become desert recently. It, after, the, you know, the uh, people started settling here. This out of, you can say that humans, consumerism, greed, that so much plant was totally this cut. And that has resulted in the this, most of this desert. It has become the driest planet in the universe because of now from the government, there's a lot of project for again, afforesting is going on. It's a huge scale suggest to learn from our mistakes. So this tremendous, this weather change, everything is happening because we have never given importance to the idea of the yagya in the broad sense, which Bhagavad Gita is describing following the uh, concept as has been indicated in Shatapata Brahmana, which is the later part of the Vedas. So if you take the Yajna in that, then it speaks of a chakra, Yajna chakra. So we may take many things from life, but we must also return. So a person who only enjoys life, but does not contribute to it. So this, according to Gita, is a sinner. He is a sensualist. He lives in vain. So that's the thing which Bhagavad Gita is indicating, it will conclude the idea in the 16th sloka. What it is saying? Evam pravartitam chakra. This chakra, pravartitam, the Lord has, it is not we human who have created this chakra, this cycle. Chakra is a cycle. This cycle we have not created. It is there. Something higher than life is there. You may term it as God or whatever it may be. So that's what Bhagavad Gita is saying, that that has been started by something which is much larger than life, much larger than life. Everything is not just what we think. It's something much beyond that our 
so-called this restricted human life. It has been created by that. Evang pravartitang chakram. This chakra which has emanated from me, from the Lord. Na anuvartayatiha, the one who doesn't follow that. Aghayu rindriya rama. His agha ayu, his ayu, his life is in when it is full of sin. He is just a sensual being, indriya arama. Moghan partha sajivati. His life is in when. That life is of no use. So that's the idea of, of karma yoga taken from that all encompassing idea of yajna. If we can understand from that point, then the entire life becomes a yajna. So that's as Swami Vivekananda used to say that spirituality can never be a part time affair. That I go to the church, I follow some rituals, and even nowadays people have started under, uh, um, realizing the importance of meditation. So I lead a reckless life, but I think that just one hour or two hours of meditation will help me, will help me to just uh, revert the damage which I create by the reckless life. Spirituality is not that part-time affair. Whether it's in the form of going to church or having some belief, or nowadays I think I don't believe in organized religion. I'm a spiritual being. I just do some mindfulness meditation. But that has to be the has to encompass the entire life. If you're really practicing mindfulness, it is not that just for one hour or two hours. Are you mindful throughout the day in all your activities or whatever you're doing? So that, so spirituality is not a part-time affair. You cannot say that I am spiritual and practice spirituality just for some one or two hours a day. It has to encompass our entire life. And that is possible only when you can change your vision, change your attitude. Instead of taking spirituality, uh, uh, identifying spirituality with some limited practices, you change your perspective look at the life from a much more broader perspective and then each and every activity. It's not your activity which defines your spirituality. What's your attitude behind that? That speaks of the spirituality. The attitude, the same work can go on. If I, with my skills, with all my uh, education, if I am a doctor, engineer, I'm a plumber or I'm even a, a, a tradie, whatever I may be, it's not the question of what you are doing. With what attitude you are doing, that speaks of spirituality. And that encompasses our entire work field. Even when I'm going to work, I am doing my spiritual practice. If I do it from that idea of yajna. Otherwise, life is in vain. Know it for certain. We can never get fulfillment from life. Yet this cannot be a, a mass of patchwork. It can never be mass of that I just live the life recklessly and it has created in some tears and and I just the spirituality is just there to do a patchwork that can never be it has to encompass our life it has to overhaul our personality with a total changing of the perspective and that's the idea of yajna which has been spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita so he's all her life is a scene aghayu he or she is myopic delighted only in the sensory pleasures cannot see what is ahead it's just like that, uh, that you know, this marshmallow experiment, very famous. A small, it has been done with the small children. That if you give it a marshmallow, it, is, it tends to eat immediately. If you say, just wait for some time, I will 
come back after 10 minutes i will give you the second marshmallow everyone all the children are willing to have the second marshmallow but they cannot wait for 10 minutes <clears throat> they immediately want to enjoy the sensory pleasures of life and that's why we forget the long term goals the short term goals deludes us we are myopic short sighted and that makes us sensuous all the sensuality is because of our myopic vision we cannot see what's awaiting and so renunciation is not a negative term which means that i just simply relinquish something it means i relinquish something very trivial for something which is really valuable it's something positive that i renounce something trivial for something really valuable which is waiting for me i am waiting for some far fetched far fetched goals and for that i leave out some trivial to get that i have to leave so we become indriya ram because we don't have that idea of yagya that how it can really help in the prosperity of all including me which that that all doesn't exclude me i am not sacrificing myself for the welfare of others it's an it is not uh, what do you say that selflessness i won't say it is selflessness it is enlightened selfishness as swami ranganathan used to say you are still selfish i know i want my good of course i am not going to to good to others at the cost of my own good i want my good but i know it for certain that if i follow the basic law of creation if i follow that law of synergy my welfare lies in the welfare of others so i am trying to help others because at last it helps me so with that attitude you are be are bound to go beyond that that limited idea of just mere sensual pleasure of the sunset world and his life of course is when who cannot have that broad vision so that's the idea so that's even some of the quotations are wonderful as mahatma gandhi used to say very interesting thing and we find it is so much uh, uh, its implication is so important nowadays what it's he used to say that there is enough in this world to meet human needs but there is not enough to meet human wants that all our greeds the earth doesn't have resource to meet that it has sufficient resource to meet the human needs but not the human wants so that's what is been spoken of with the idea of this yagya his life is life of extreme polarization that's useless that life is going to destroy the entire humanity as such and the one who thinks he is enjoying at the cost of other he also will be annihilated he cannot no one can stay alone without the prosperity of others it's impossible at last it is going to annihilate the entire human race we cannot annihilate the entire creation you know that recently i was seeing as some video in the national geographic that how life has come in the chernobyl that nuclear plant where the humans has been we thought that because of that radiation the life is not possible so all the humans were vacated from there no one was there in 20 30 years all the buildings everything is has become green the walls have become green it's all full of vegetation the flora fauna everything has developed there we because of our mistake we have to be uh, we had to just leave that place but it's not that the entire creation has been uh, what is says being annihilated the nature has its own way to grow it has come up but without others that we think that we are so important we decide as if the entire creation 
Know it for certain. The nature doesn't need us. It continues in its own way. If we have to continue with the nature, we have to follow the law. Otherwise, it is we who will be annihilated. Nature continues. No one can stop the way it wants to find its expression. No one can stop it. It is we who have to cooperate with it. Otherwise, it is we who die. So that's the idea which we find very nicely with the concept of yajna, as this Bhagavad Gita is trying to explain. Next, Bhagavad Gita, in these ideas, this karma has various layers of understanding. It will take us to every different uh, dimension where we can experience action, actionlessness, even in action. It is just by going beyond the desires, actions can go with the idea of seek not, avoid not. We go on with our actions. A flow ensues in our life. As if the body, mind, everything is working, I am totally detached. I am as if just in a flow. Nothing is forcing me. And that can give a tremendous amount of bliss, even in our world of action. How is it possible? What's the attitude behind it? How we should lead our life to really enjoy the flow, which can give us the sense of jivan mukti, that freedom while living, that generally the religion propounds the idea that if you lead a very good life, pure life, you go to heaven. It is something post-mortal existence. It's after death. It's something future. As if happiness, happiness is something waiting for us in the future. But in the Bhagavad Gita, with the idea of this karma, they will give us an idea of instant happiness. It's a cash down payment here itself. Just by, for, by being desireless, you can get the bliss out of it here and now in this moment. That's the idea. So you need not have to wait till death. If some, if, uh, you have to not keep the happiness something in the future. Here itself you can enjoy. How is it possible? That's the idea. The, with the layers of understanding, Bhagavad Gita will unfold it from the succeeding slokas, which we will take up again in the next class. So from the 17th sloka, we will take up uh, the other idea, other ideas of understanding, uh, which are uh, is encoded in this uh, th third chapter, which we'll take up again in the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskar.